Good evening. Uh, my name is Sumi Matok. I am Associate Professor at the LSE Gender Institute. I'm delighted to welcome you all uh, to this evening's uh, talk, and in particular, I'm delighted to welcome uh, this evening's speaker, Professor Madhavi Al-Rashid. Um, Professor Madhavi Al-Rashid needs no introduction to this audience. You've all come to hear her because you know of her work. However, um, these um, events have a certain formal structure, and so let me say uh, a few words about her. Professor Madhavi Al-Rashid is visiting professor at the Middle East Center at LSE and research fellow at the Open Society Foundation. She was professor of anthropology uh, of religion at King's College London between 1994 and 2013, and previously to that she was prize research fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford. She also taught at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Oxford. Among her many publications, numerous books and articles on Saudi Arabia, politics, religion, and the Arab world, as well as contributing to various academic journals and edited volumes. Her, she, tonight, she will be speaking to her new book, uh, which is this one, which is called A Most Masculine State, Gender Politics and Religion in Saudi Arabia. And to those of you who haven't yet had a chance to look at it, I, I recommend it to you in very strong terms. At the end of the talk, Professor uh, Al-Rashid has very kindly agreed to sign some copies uh, of her book which are there for and available uh, for purchase. So uh, if you should like that, uh, do, do get yourself uh, uh, to the table at the end of the proceedings. Um, Professor Al-Rashid will speak for 40, 45 minutes, and after which she will take questions. Uh, uh, from the floor, um, and I will, and I will sort of, uh, g uh, you know, give you a little bit of what uh, I I'd like you to do when you do ask uh, questions of Professor Al Rashid. So, uh, without much ado, I give you Professor Al Rashid. Thank you, Sumi, for uh, your kind words. First, uh, I must say that uh, many thanks to the Middle East Center uh, at LSE for hosting uh, me tonight, uh, but also for hosting me longer than that. Uh, for the coming three years, I'll be based at the Middle East Center here, and I'm looking forward to working with uh, staff at the Middle East Center and LSE uh, as well. Um, tonight, uh, it is an event to introduce a new book that was published recently, and I was working on it for the last three years. Um, I must say that uh, this book had a very uh, old story, and it took me almost a quarter of a century to come to terms with writing a book on what one would believe is Saudi women. The story began in Cambridge in 1985 when, when I was a student and uh, I went to the Faculty of Oriental Studies, as one does in those days, in order to hear about the Middle East. And at the Faculty of Oriental Studies there are eminent scholars, but also there are retired colonial officers, as one imagines. Uh, one of them said to me, oh, so you're a young girl from Saudi Arabia, oh, are you here to study women? And I said, well, absolutely not. My project is not about women. In fact, I was looking at state formation, and that was the topic of my PhD. So uh, that old colonial officer gave me a complex that if you're a Saudi woman, you must study other women in your country. So for the last 25 years, I uh, uh, kept the subject of gender relations away from my research agenda. 
Yet I found that in every book I wrote uh, since, 19, um, since the 1990s, there was an element where the narrative of women were inserted in my books, whether I was talking about tribal politics, about the history of Saudi Arabia, about Arab migration to London. In every single volume, I felt that there was an in, unintentional um, uh, discussion of uh, gender relations of women in society and in politics. So um, I finished my last book three years ago and I decided that this time I'm going to write a book on gender relations in Saudi Arabia. So the book is really uh, is not about women. It is about the relationship um, that an authoritarian state has with women. So the, my focus is not on women themselves, but on that relationship that shapes the prospects for women's lives and emancipation in any country. It is also a story about how a masculine state feminizes itself. And therefore, there are these two parallel uh, stories that run through the book. And uh, it began after 9-11. 9-11 was a very important event, not only for the United States, but also for the Arab world and specifically to Saudi Arabia. At that stage, uh, as you all probably remember, that Saudi Arabia was heavily accused by the, uh, uh, by the United States and also uh, the outside world in general of having uh, had something to do with 9-11. Um, in the sense that its religious tradition, its society came under scrutiny uh, because it was believed that the 15 hijackers uh, were Saudi and therefore there was a context called Saudi Arabia society, religion, politics that produced those 15 hijackers. And at the same time, uh, while uh, the world was trying to come to terms with what happened, uh, the story of Saudi women began to become even more prominent in Western media, among policymakers, and in Saudi Arabia itself. So uh, this also coincided with the uh, increasing interest in um, uh, the uh, discrimination against women by global feminists. Uh, global feminism uh, almost uh, was strengthened in the 1990s and even more so after 2011 and the question of women became very much entangled with terrorism for some reason that uh, maybe become uh, clearer later. So at that moment I decided that I really want to write a book that uh, uh, shatters so many myths about Saudi women. Saudi women conjure contradictory images. Uh, uh, people are interested in that uh, sort of uh, uh, a world that seems to quite a lot of us here in London is uh, so alien and different. And uh, the media doesn't help in actually giving us a balanced view of the lives and uh, constraints and prospects of uh, uh, women in Saudi Arabia. So anyway, on a, a spectrum, you have the Taliban uh, at one end, then next to the Taliban comes Saudi Arabia. It is slotted on that uh, sort of axis that we have this sort of extreme discrimination against women among the Taliban of Afghanistan. Then next to that we have Saudi Arabia. And this had been a persistent image that was extremely difficult to actually deconstruct and expose uh, for so many reasons. Saudi women helped to create that other that we in the West here measure our development and our pro progress. 
against those other women in other parts of the world who happen to be different from us and are subjected to the uh, oppression of their men. So with global feminism, we see that quite a lot of feminists wanted to save that other, that Muslim woman who happened to be in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or in Saudi Arabia. And here uh, they come across several problems. So I wanted to, to demystify Saudi women and look at their lives as normal human beings in their diversity and in their uh, rich experiences, in their suffering and in their success. So uh, the, the general assumption that um, in order to understand why women in Saudi Arabia can't drive, why if they travel abroad they have to be accompanied by a male guardian or uh, given an authorization, why they cannot represent themselves in court, there are so many restrictions. Uh, their unemployment level is extremely low in, in the country. So there, are, there is a package of indices that uh, demonstrate to anybody who studies that particular part of the world that there is a serious gender uh, 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 discrimination in the country. So people volunteer explanations. Why are Saudi women lagging behind in employment, in, legal, uh, in citizenship rights, in civil and political rights? And by the way, they're not the only ones who lag behind in political and civil rights because men too are actually denied any kind of political representation in an elected assembly or uh, they not denied the right to form civil society and there are many other aspects of authoritarian rule that are dominant in Saudi Arabia. So what are the, question, the answers to this uh, predicament, to this polarized uh, uh, image about Saudi women uh, that is uh, often described as a complete victim of their own society uh, or as a, a hero. So we are exposed to these two contradictory images of the Saudi women. On the one hand, we've, we have stories about them being denied the right to drive, freedom of movement, the right to leave the country, or uh, in fact the right to have a passport without the permission of their guardian. So these are the, victim, the victimhood uh, side of the story. But at, again, the Western media and quite a lot of the uh, Arabic media and Saudi media celebrates the hero, the first woman who is a pilot. She can uh, fly a plane. The first woman who uh, got a research fellowship at Harvard. The first woman who is actually going to practice law. In fact, there are four of them today. Uh, it was announced that they were given the, the license to uh, practice law in, in courts. So we have the victim and the hero, but the majority of Saudi women are neither heroes nor victims. They're just ordinary women like you and me. Uh, now, in order to understand this polarization, these two persistent images, most uh, people would volunteer two reasons. First, that comes to mind, it's the Wahhabi Salafi religious tradition. And it is an easy answer because you could blame everything on the Saudi a religious tradition that is known as the, Saudi, the Wahhabi Salafi movement, uh, which had its roots in the 18th century but survived over the last 250 years. And any kind of problem can be blamed on the Saudi Wahhabi Salafi tradition. So if there is low level of um, uh, employment, participation in the labor force, it is the Saudi Wahhabi Salafi movement that prohibits women from work. 
If women can't drive, then it is the Saudi Salafi Wahhabi movement that prohibits women from driving. So religion, basically. We're talking here about a religious tradition that grew out of a particular context in the Arabian Peninsula in the 18th century. And uh, one could uh, have volumes of uh, religious opinions called fatwa in order to support the argument that religion oppresses Saudi women. Islam, basically in its Wahhabi Salafi tradition. Now, this is a problematic uh, interpretation, and in the book, I try to go beyond essentializing religion, essentializing I Islam. The Saudi religious Wahhabi uh, Salafi scholars do not actually invent uh, religious opinion. They rely on religious opinion that had existed for centuries in the, in the Muslim world. They uh, rely on multiple sources, the Quran, the tradition of the Prophet, and also the interpretation of other male religious scholars. And they provide uh, the most uh, extreme uh, interpretations in terms of the prohibitions. They abide by certain principles in Islam that are not specifically Saudi, that uh, uh, they have developed in order to prevent greater sins or greater temptation. And therefore, they sort of verge on the extreme case of prohibiting certain uh, activities that are in other Muslim countries regarded as lawful. So religion and Islam becomes an umbrella against, uh, uh, that covers everything, almost all social, political, and religious ills, including gender discrimination in Saudi Arabia. And my book tries to go beyond this argument um, because, first of all, it is reductionist, and second, it doesn't actually uh, talk about the context in which religion is appropriated by people, uh, developed, interpreted, or reinterpreted. So religion itself is not the cause of discrimination against women in my book, but it is the conversion of religion into a religious nationalist ideology that uh, allows the appropriation of women as an object in order to represent something other than themselves. So I'll try to explain. The, the Saudi tradition, uh, uh, Saudi Wahhabism, if you like, itself has become a nationalist, a religious nationalist ideology. Let's here distinguish between two types of nationalism. There is the, order, the nationalism that we have encountered in Europe, mainly a secular kind of nationalism that some other Arab countries have uh, adapted in the form of nationalism in the 1950s and 60s. But that nationalism was secular. It was appealing to the nation, to its culture, to its identity, language, etc., in order to appeal to a context whereby both Muslims and non-Muslims lived. So, for example, in Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt, there was a religious diversity that that secular nationalism tried to incorporate in the construction of the nation. But without going into how it failed, uh, uh, in that project, women were appropriated as symbols for the modernity of the nation. So these nationalist leaders, such as Nasser and the others, appropriated women 
in order to promote the modernity or the so-called modernity of the nation, very much like uh, in other post-colonial situations, such as, for example, in India, where women uh, uh, within the family became idealized as the cornerstone for the development of the nation. In Saudi Arabia, there was no secular nationalism. What instead, the construction of the nation took the form of a religious nationalist ideology in order to homogenize people and construct them as one people. Now, whether they succeeded or not, that's a different question. But in this project of religious nationalism, the state became important, and the, the state's uh, uh, objective was to maintain the morality of the nation. So the, the state becomes the guardian of the nation. It has to demonstrate its piety because it is a religious nation, unlike in the secular variant of nationalism where the modernity of uh, the nation had to be visible and the visibility required the visibility of women. Ironically, in Saudi Arabia, the visibility of piety, of religious compliance and religious um, um, uh, uh, observance, so the visibility of piety was dependent on the invisibility of women. So the more you uh, uh, segregate your women, the more you uh, uh, do not allow them a visible space in the public sphere, the more the pious, the visibility of the nation. And therefore, this is extremely important to understand because one could say, well, it's religion and then move on. But it is not actually that. It is this transformation of a, a religious tradition, the Wahhabi tradition, into a religious nationalist ideology that created this situation. A second factor that is always quoted or cited as a, a reason behind the uh, extreme, perhaps, discrimination in some cases against women in Saudi Arabia is culture. And again, here we move into this sort of cultural argument that uh, is often reduced to tribalism. So society is tribal, tribes are patriarchal, they want to keep their women inside the tribe, and therefore the tribalism in that culture contribute to uh, the marginalization of women and to some extent their discrimination against them. But Saudi Arabia is not the only tribal country in the region, at least in the Arabian Peninsula. It is not less or more tribal than Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, Yemen and other, other uh, countries. In fact, quite a lot of the tribes or the tribal element is divided across different countries. So there is a continuum of tribal groups from Saudi Arabia to Kuwait. You'd find that uh, all of them have relatives in Kuwait and vice versa. Uh, the same thing in the south of Saudi Arabia. You see the same pattern between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. So the tribal element is not unique to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and therefore questions about employment of women or even driving is not an issue in countries like Kuwait or in Qatar. Uh, United Arab Emirates and other places. So why is it an issue in Saudi Arabia? And therefore, tribalism cannot be held responsible for this unique situation. Um, I think both Saudi Arabia and its neighbors belong to uh, what uh, Denis Candiotti calls the patriarchal belt. And this patriarchal belt stretches from Morocco 
to Asia, and therefore there's nothing unique about Saudi Arabia, and there are variations. What is unique uh, is that uh, Kuwait, Qatar, and the other Arab uh, neighbors of Saudi Arabia do not, as states, do not build their legitimacy on creating the pious nation. So it is easier and more flexible to negotiate gender roles and gender rights in countries like Kuwait or Qatar, whereas in Saudi Arabia, the state itself builds its legitimacy on this religious nationalism, and therefore it has become a prisoner of its own ideology, of its own religious nationalism, and cannot maneuver uh, without actually losing some of its legitimacy. So, in a way, uh, these two factors, religion and culture, have to be taken uh, 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 carefully into account, and I cannot um, uh, say that they can be held responsible for discrimination against women or the gender gap in Saudi Arabia. You have to look at them, uh, including other factors. So, what do I look at in the book? I look at oil. Oil is extremely important, and it has become a mixed blessing. Oil was an enabling factor in the sense that it allowed the state to have the resources in order, for example, to introduce mass education in the 1960s, improve the health uh, services for women, uh, build a welfare uh, state that caters for women's needs. Uh, but at the same time, oil has uh, become a constraining factor. Oil itself, like the Saudi state, is a masculine industry. How? Oil is not an industry that is comparable to, for example, textile or factories, uh, even car building. Um, oil tends to be in uh, uh, distant locations, away from urban centers, and it is a male-dominated industry. Even among the early uh, American uh, oil uh, company, the workers, they brought their secretaries with them. And apart from that role, there wasn't really scope for women to work in the oil industry. So there was a specific job for women, American women who went to Aramco camp in Saudi Arabia where the, oil, uh, the first oil camp uh, was established. Um, and, um, Later, Saudi Arabia had maintained the, the fact that uh, oil is a masculine industry and it does not generate a substantial employment for women. So, uh, in a way, women uh, were uh, not recruited initially uh, in the oil industry, but later on their numbers started to increase. Um, most Saudi women are employed in teaching and in health services. So the oil uh, allowed the Saudis to, in a way, uh, 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 create a kind of mass education, health, and, and services, but it was restraining in many other respects. One respect is it instilled in the minds of society that the Saudi woman is a jewel that needs to be protected. So she, needs not, she doesn't need to work if, if for example, um, um, she can afford not to. Oil allows Saudi women to bring foreign drivers to drive them everywhere. Also, it allows the country to employ uh, uh, almost 10 to 11 million foreign workers while it has resources 
uh, women's uh, expertise at hand. But the government decides not to rock the boat too much and not to draw women into employment on a massive scale. There are reasons why um, the foreign labor is still dominant in Saudi Arabia, uh, but that's another story that we, I can't go into now. Um, more recently, the state tried to introduce uh, or expand employment of women, and ironically, they were uh, recruited in, uh, in jobs uh, that require interaction with other women. So one, one of the jobs that might seem bizarre to you is that um, uh, shops that sell women's underwear uh, have to have women uh, saleswomen so that a woman feel comf feels comfortable when she goes and buys uh, these uh, clothing items. And therefore there was a feminization of uh, lingerie shops in Saudi Arabia. Also, more recently, women were allowed to uh, work as cashiers in order to create uh, employment opportunities for uh, a, a cross-section of Saudi society. Uh, not all of them have uh, higher education uh, and in order to increase their participation in the labor force. So the economy is important to take into account, specifically if this economy is an oil-based economy and what the consequences of that on gender. Now, of course, there are other countries that produce oil do not have this issue uh, of gender discrimination. Um, but uh, I think with the exception of some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, oil itself does not seem to be favorable to women's emancipation uh, in, in many countries, especially in South America, for example, and in other places. So let me move uh, into the final uh, cause that I think is extremely important to explain why uh, Saudi women have lagged behind over the years. I think it is policies and it is politics that is entangled with this religious nationalism and politics of an authoritarian state that patronizes women um, and uh, derives a certain kind of legitimacy from claiming to protect them and guard them against intrusions from outsiders, from religious uh, or Western trends. Because the Saudi state builds its legitimacy as the guardian of the soul of its nation, the guardian of its morality, then it is forced to take certain steps that prove that. So the segregation uh, of women uh, or sex segregation, the visibility, the visible signs of uh, women being uh, a protected and guarded uh, uh, citizens is extremely important for the state uh, for state legitimacy. But the state politics is not always the same. It, it follows a certain kind of historical trajectory because uh, politics changes and the state legitimacy changes. And therefore, the Saudi state has oscillated between restricting women and empowering women, depending on the political context. So, to give you examples, uh, the establishment of the state itself from 1932, we begin to have uh, narratives or historical narratives about how the state was uh, established um, and what kind of acts that led to the establishment of the state. 
Of course, there is the story about the hero, the founder of Saudi Arabia. There's the story about British colonial officers of the type that I mentioned early, uh, who were more active, actually, than the one I met um, um, in the 80s. Um, there is the story of battles, of, uh, of uh, raids on other groups, and the, the, the masculine foundation of the state is actually embedded in history textbooks. So it's a story of courage and chivalry. But also we have the story about women. The whole project was to protect the honor of women, uh, the, to demonstrate that uh, women are not contaminated by blasphemous or sinful uh, others. And therefore the creation of the state becomes a project entangled with uh, femininity and protecting the feminine person. But that came to sort of a change in the 1950s and 60s. Remember, in the 50s and 60s, this was the age of sort of Arab nationalism, and each state was trying to show that it's more modern than the other. So Saudi Arabia had to compete with, at the time, Egypt, which was under uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser, who was a secular, supposedly, uh, nationalist leadership. Uh, and uh, him and many others wanted to demonstrate how modern they are, and therefore, they tried to promote women's causes in their education, employment, etc. And Saudi Arabia had to do the same, despite its own religious nationalist ideology. So it introduced schooling women, the education of women on a mass scale. And there was obviously resistance because uh, uh, the modern school uh, for women specifically uh, was uh, regarded as a deviation from traditional teaching and traditional learning methods. But that's not the reason. The schools that were introduced in Saudi Arabia had to import uh, non-Saudi teachers from other Arab countries. So Palestinian, Lebanese, Egyptian women had to be brought into the communities in order to teach Saudi women. And obviously the worry was that these teachers would bring new lifestyles, new ideas, and contaminate the purity and piety of local women. But also, these modern schools uh, marginalized, up to a certain extent, the traditional religious scholars who used to teach women basic knowledge about uh, language and also religious uh, education. So, for many reasons, there was rejection of the modern school, simply because it competed with the local tradition that had been going on for years. And therefore, the state was able to force uh, women's schooling on society. And at the beginning, it, was, it wasn't, uh, people weren't very excited. Uh, quite a lot of uh, girls had to be grouped together regardless of their age um, in, in a particular class. Um, until um, almost like a decade. And there was quite a lot of dropout because societies, families did not want their uh, girls to stay in education for a long time. So you have people just finishing uh, elementary school, then taken out of school in order to help with large families or uh, to marry. Then we come to the 1980s. And uh, all this kind of, uh, uh, these kind of initiatives that were introduced in order to empower women and move uh, women's education had a setback in the 1980s. 
And the policy of the state was to reverse the openness uh, of the previous decades and uh, move towards greater restrictions on women. It is the state doesn't suddenly sort of decide to do that. There was an international and regional context that pushed it to use the gender card in order to uh, survive quite a lot of challenges. One of the re uh, local challenge was the 1979 seizure of the Mecca mosque, whereby a group of uh, radical Islamists uh, moved into the mosque uh, and uh, held people hostages uh, during the pilgrimage season. That uh, made the government aware of a rising uh, Islamist trend that criticized the government for its westernizing impact on society, for allowing Saudi women, or for being also uh, uh, an, a close ally of the West. So the Islamist uh, threat uh, that started in 1979 was also uh, uh, using women as a, a symbol for its opposition to the government. From both sides, um, we find this uh, reinforcing each other. So the, the government uh, dis, uh, uh, managed to uh, eliminate the rebels in the mosque, but at the same time, after its success, it incorporated their own demands and implemented them. So there were restrictions on women in the 1980s that the previous generation of women didn't experience. Um, the rise of Islamism as well uh, contributed to greater restrictions and also uh, the gender issue becoming uh, a topic for debate. So the 1980s were uh, the period of um, um, greater restriction. And the situation continued until 2000 and 2001 when the government decided to reverse its policy and empower women. So these are uh, uh, conditions that uh, um, push a particular government to either uh, move in the direction of empowering women or restricting them. And I think the quest for legitimacy is extremely important in a country uh, like Saudi Arabia. And women, as I said earlier, become the visible sign of all sorts of things, although they may remain invisible. Today, uh, what, what I have, I bring the story in the book to what is going on now. Um, and the interesting uh, uh, outcome of the last decade is that both the Saudi, uh, Saudi state and Saudi society are uh, almost in a race uh, uh, for the quest to become cosmopolitan modern. And this is extremely interesting because it has certain consequences for gender issues. Um, the cosmopolitan modernity is now a kind of legitimacy narrative that uh, we are modern we have modern installations, if you go to the country. Uh, we have modern roads, modern hospitals, a construction boom, etc. And therefore, we are also cosmopolitan in our own way. In terms of cosmopolitanism, if you think that cosmopolitanism is to have people from multiple nationality coexisting, this is not cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism is something else. But the visibility of pluralism is there. And therefore, uh, gender becomes important. Um, and in order to capture how women themselves respond to this, I look at women's literature 
um, in the last uh, 10, 15 years. And uh, this literature in the form of novels is extremely important in a country like Saudi Arabia. I was amazed how many novels were published uh, over the last, two, uh, the last 10 years by Saudi women. Um, and um, as I interviewed women novelists, uh, such as Umayma al-Khamis, Badriya al-Bishr, uh, and many others, I found that uh, literature plays an important role in an oppressive uh, country like Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi women are not allowed to have a real uh, 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 civil society on the ground to promote their causes. Um, and therefore, uh, they are prohibited from organizing a civil society with uh, a clear agenda to promote women's empowerment. Any women's empowerment must come from the top down. And therefore, if you have associations, they have to be patronized by the leadership. In fact, they have to be patronized by some princesses in order for them to function. So patronage of the state or women in the state, usually their daughters or the uh, uh, sisters or the mothers of, of the royal family, have to uh, um, patronize these societies, such as charities, or even they themselves are founders of charities. Um, independent space is very limited uh, and it is uh, very suspicious. So charitable organizations that are not under the patronage of some royalty become suspicious. And uh, sometimes they are uh, <coughs> repressed. So I look at two generations of women uh, and their writing uh, that represent a window of opportunity to read uh, these, uh, to read Saudi society and women's voices in Saudi society. Uh, I chose these two generations because they write differently. Uh, one generation, I call them the generation of women in search of themselves. Um, and these women are trying to reflect on their own society in ways that are unusual. Um, so, for example, uh, they tend to deconstruct the religious nationalist narrative, which claims that we are all the same. Uh, we are all Muslims and Arabs, and there are no variations between different parts of Saudi Arabia. So these women are trying to deconstruct this and look at the uh, roots of the pluralism in Saudi society. Basically, they are saying that we are not one nation. Uh, some of this literature undermines the religious uh, and political narrative about Saudi Arabia that is promoted by the state. So they look at the uh, uh, foreign wife who comes from, let's say, Syria or Lebanon and brought to live in Saudi Arabia and her experience of Saudi Arabia. So through the voices, uh, through fictive voices, they narrate experiences and sometimes this literature actually bridges the gap between fiction and reality. In my interviews with these novelists I realized that, um, that what they were describing is actually drawn from their own experience. One of them said to me that uh, we live in a limited circle among women and we have no uh, um, exposure or experiences that we could talk about. But some of these novelists actually document uh, either biographical uh, uh, information or experiences that they have encountered in their family. 
family. So if you buy the book, you'll find the references. And some of these uh, novels are really interesting because simply they uh, bridge that gap between fiction and reality. A uh, second generation that is uh, younger than this generation of novelists, these are the product of that cosmopolitan modernity, in inverted comma. It is the, about the shopping center. It's about uh, traveling to London and, and uh, California, uh, San Francisco, hanging around in Chicago, uh, or even going on holiday in Sharm el-Sheikh. So this new generation of young uh, celebrity Muslim women novelists is promoted in the West and it's promoted in Saudi Arabia as the new face of the Saudi women. But let's face it, these are privileged, uh, truly cosmopolitan, uh, globetrotters, novelists who have actually become a product of the neoliberal economy that dominates Saudi Arabia. So they hang around in shopping malls and drink cappuccino like we all do here. And therefore they write about their experiences, they write about um, men and women in Saudi Arabia. And some of them actually write about flirtation, about sex, and some of them are even more daring. They talk about uh, 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 same-sex love and relationships. So this has become the celebrity novelist, and I'm sure you know one famous one is Raja Asana, but there are others who have uh, actually uh, focused more than her on sex in Saudi society. And obviously, they get in trouble simply for saying what Saudis are not uh, um, used to being said by women novelists and made public. There's quite a lot of talk in Saudi society about sex, but that talk comes within a framework. It is the framework of religious education. In Islam itself, there's quite a lot of talk uh, about sex uh, in terms of purity, ablution, uh, pleasure as well. This may come to a surprise to many uh, people, but there are manuals in religious studies about how a woman can please her husband and how her husband can please her. Um, and therefore, that talk <coughs> is taught to school girls at a very young age in the education curriculum. How to please your husband, what, how you purify yourself, how you make yourself actually a good uh, Muslim women in that domain. So uh, this uh, new literature challenges that. They do not want uh, Saudi uh, audiences to learn about sex from novels or read about sex in novels because that erotic theology that I call erotic theology uh, will lose its uh, um, um, relevance in a cosmopolitan modern society and therefore these novelists get in trouble, but not to the extent of uh, harassment um, or um, you know, other kind of oppression. But these are not the representative of uh, Muslim women. They are simply one voice among many others. So in the book, I look at the Islamist women, the, what is called the da'iyat, the preachers, who also are extremely modern. We would be surprised. They may be modern because they are product of the modernity of Saudi Arabia in the last three, four decades. They are a product of the religious education system that produces literate religious 
religiously literate women as much as it produces religiously literate men. And they have a different vision of how society should be. Uh, one would be surprised that some of them may uh, sign a petition against allowing women to drive. So we would think, I was surprised, you know, why would another woman uh, doesn't want to drive and doesn't want other women to drive? Or, for example, if um, there is mixing between men and women in an office, they tend to object to that, and they think that mixing between the sexes would actually uh, reduce the employment of women in offices. So, in, in conversation um, about driving, I asked one of them, why do you object to women driving to the extent of signing a petition? So she said, I do not want my husband to rely on me for everything, to take the children to school, to do the shopping, to do all the household uh, uh, issues, uh, running the household with a car, he should be around and present to take me to places. If I can drive, then he would rely on me. So from the outside, we think that they have a serious religious reason for objecting to women's driving, and in fact, it turned out to be a very practical uh, reason about family dynamic and division of labor within the family. Um, another example is uh, women and mixing um, in an office. Obviously, uh, there is a problem with polygamy, and a veiled woman told me that she does not want her husband to hang around in an office with unveiled women simply because he will be exposed to women and he might actually take a second wife. So remove religion out of it and then the argument and the reason becomes actually very simple to understand and relate to. Another example, um, a veiled woman argued that she does not want her husb future husband to see her before the wedding. And this may seem really uh, difficult to understand in our own society. There is one um, uh, kind of look that is allowed, and it is called the legitimate look at a woman before marriage, and the nazra shar'iyya, that is within the uh, Islamic tradition. And that is you meet uh, with the family around and you show the face, but uh, you can't uh, have um, sort of um, a, a, a privacy you have to be surrounded by other members of the family. And a woman said that I'm not even allowing my husband to have a future husband to have this look. And I said, why? And she said, what if he doesn't like what he sees and changes his mind? And then everybody would know that he came to see me and he didn't like me. And therefore, that would actually impact on my chances of, seeing, of being uh, proposed to again. If I become sort of available for those men to come and have a look, then they go without the look uh, uh, leading to marriage. And therefore, to protect her honor and reputation, she does not want her hus future husband or fiancé to see her. So we have to go beyond this sort of rigid, essentializing way of looking at Islam as the cause of every single issue uh, that, uh, that we, we are not familiar with. We cannot simply uh, rely on um, um, on that argument to explain everything. Now, um, just let me conclude, I think. Hey, got a minute or two. A minute or two, yes. So, in a way, uh, the, the book concludes by saying that there is an intimate connection between gender discrimination in Saudi Arabia and authoritarian rule. Uh, 
And this is very clear to me uh, as I uh, uh, did this research and tried to understand uh, the, the many causes that are often listed. But what surprised me was also that the different voices of these women looked for the authoritarian state to deliver. So it is interesting that uh, quite a lot of women seek an authoritarian state to give them certain rights. And this goes across the board, from the most liberal women to the most religious. Basically, women need authoritarian state in, a, in society where they haven't had consensus over their rights. Uh, gender issues remain volatile in a country like Saudi Arabia, and therefore any kind of change uh, is expected to be initiated from the top. The state can only do it for them. And interesting, the, uh, the Saudi state has uh, tried to move women, uh, as most states do, from the private patriarchy of their family, of their kin, their fathers, and put them under its own patriarchy through legislation and through the welfare services. Uh, in a way, the welfare state marginalizes uh, men and the state becomes another source that the women must seek in order to protect themselves against men, other men. And therefore, it's a very uh, a common story that is not unique to Saudi Arabia that men, uh, that women seek the authoritarian state when they lack the consensus of their own society and when they are deprived of mobilizing, of becoming an active civil society. It's very difficult for them to actually uh, uh, gain any rights without seeking the authoritarian state that patronizes them and deliver certain kind of rights, um, although these rights may be limited. And this had coincided with the Saudi king who wanted to shift the legitimacy of the ruling family to a new level uh, by feminizing the Saudi state, the masculine state, simply because it, this coincided with the Saudi state uh, seeking international legitimacy. It was important for the Saudi state to be seen as doing something about gender. And therefore, um, at the same time, the mobilization of women in Saudi Arabia has increased over the last five years in terms of uh, uh, staging campaigns to drive, uh, although unsuccessful so far, uh, but they are mobilizing. And the, st the authoritarian state has to hijack women's mobilization before it gets out of hand. And therefore, it is important to co-opt women's activism and women to be seen as seeking more rights from the state rather than taking these rights. Um, and therefore, from the point of view of the, of the government, uh, women are needed as a group in order to fight political dissent among men. And once the Saudi scene uh, was dominated by Islamist politics, women become extremely important to launch attacks against the Islamists. Because we still have this idea that whenever Islamists dominate, women are the losers. But again, 
uh, women can be used to fight Islamists. And this is exactly what happened in Saudi Arabia over the last 10 years, where women writers would undermine the, uh, uh, the dominance of religious scholars or uh, extremist ideas um, um, in, in, on matters that relate to them. So this new mobilization of women from driving to employment rights um, has preempted the outcome but by patronizing uh, uh, women's rights and channeling women's activism towards state-controlled objectives. So I, will, I won't go on, but I could um, um, uh, elaborate on uh, certain points in the discussion. What I just want to conclude with is uh, I think Saudi women through their writing and through their activism on the ground have already started a long and arduous journey. But I think it has already started. The voices of the, uh, the many Saudi women discussed in, in this book represent, I think, a light at the, end, at the end of the tunnel. But my attempt was to capture glimpses of this light and not to sort of blame one group or one cause for the perpetuation of discrimination against women in a country like Saudi Arabia. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Al-Rashid, for this wonderfully nuanced, uh, exciting, thought-provoking, illuminating talk. Um, I I'm sure you're buzzing with questions. I certainly have used up my sheet here with all possible uh, questions to ask of her. But I, but I, I now invite uh, questions from the floor for her. Uh, when, you, when you ask a question, can I please request you to uh, give your name and affiliation as it would help to, for Professor Al-Rashid to know who she's um, talking to. Uh, and also if I could, given how, how big this audience is tonight, could I also request that you ask only one question please, because this is only so that we can get as many questions as possible uh, to her. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Mohamed Rahman, I'm from Deutsche Bank. Um, I had a question, um, a fascinating talk, Professor, I really enjoyed it. Um, the question I had was, how much do Saudi women and indeed the rest of the women in the area, in the region, uh, see Turkey's model as an example, both in terms of women's rights and just generally? Um, you, sir. Uh, my name is Barak Justin. I'm an Arab media analyst. and. Um, my question is that uh, the issue of Saudi women's rights creates a widespread international solidarity and support. And by doing so, it plays into the regime hand, uh, which uh, uses this uh, issue to mask and obscure what, what, could, what could be considered bigger issues, such as political reform and participation, human rights both for men and women, and you know the treatment of uh, human rights activists such as Hassan and or constitutional monarchy activists, and I just wonder if uh, Professor Madawi wants to warn against this. Thank you. Um, there's a question right at the back. Right at the back. Sorry, just could you wait for the mic, please? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I was reading about the history of Saudi Arabia because, as well as the, recent, the creation of the it goes right back to the origin of Islam. I don't know if you know anything about the Karmatian sect in the 10th century that promoted a very radical social program and also the emancipation of women. Uh, it was, I think, 
One aspect of it is nihilism. I wonder if you know anything about that. If you do, I'd be interested in what you have to say about it. Thank you. Uh, and, and, and we'll take one more question and then we'll start a new round. So there's a question here in the third row. Um, hi, I'm Nikita. Um, my question is, um, can, you, can you put some light on um, the fact that if the treatment of women in Saudi Arabia uh, subject to um, different uh, economic classes, um, I mean, considering everybody in Arab countries is not rich, um, um, or is it, um, I mean, is it just is it just discrimination or restriction of women or is it uh, restriction of women from a certain class more uh, or less compared to the others? And I would also like to make a comment. It was really interesting to know uh, what you said about the cultural argument and how it relates to um, tribalism, um, which is related to keeping uh, 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 more control over your women. Because if I, if I um, relate to it, uh, to the Indian uh, tribal population, it has, uh, in fact, it, it contradicts uh, the tribal uh, women in, in uh, like the traditional tribal tribes in India. They have been known for um, uh, equal distribution of uh, work and, uh, you know, higher mobility of women. So it was just interesting to know. So I just wanted to point it out. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Uh, I'll come back for a second round of questions. So yeah. would you like to Okay. Uh, let's start with uh, Mohammed's uh, question on uh, Turkey. I think Turkey offers an interesting model. And I think quite a lot of uh, Saudis initially flirted with the idea that this is interesting. Uh, simply because it's, uh, it's a significant other. And uh, if I just to uh, anecdotal evidence is uh, the uh, success of uh, Turkish television series in the Arab world and uh, specifically in, in Saudi Arabia to the extent that one religious scholar issued a fatwa against watching them and against putting Noor or uh, one of the actors' uh, photos on T-shirts. Uh, simply because they offer a model of um, uh, a modern uh, middle-class uh, family where husband and wife are in the kitchen together. Uh, it, it blurs the gender roles uh, that um, um, are well established and therefore they're appealing. Uh, but there, Turkey had gone through different history and I think uh, any kind of imported model is not going to work. I think societies find their own model, which is not pure. It is basically a combination of different trends, different ways of living. So uh, in terms of uh, the second question on the regime and uh, uh, women's rights, uh, how they divert from political human rights, Women's rights, I think, are part of this big political project. They cannot be isolated. Uh, uh, the driving itself is a, is a human right, a freedom of movement. Um, and it is part of, of, of the wider political uh, uh, spectrum of rights. But in my view, I don't think uh, real rights can come without a political change. I, I cannot uh, 
be confident to say that authoritarian repressive states that do not allow men to be represented in a national elected assembly, for example, can deliver rights to women. And as I showed in my historical analysis, that whatever is given this decade may be taken away next decade. I mean, in the 50s, there was a, a good sort of, you know, spirit of empowering women, educating them. In the 1980s, they refused to give them scholarships to uh, go abroad to study the whole uh, um, and then later on they were allowed to. So there was a zigzag sort of uh, 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 trajectory of rights and without uh, rights being uh, embodied in institutions it's very difficult. But even now the state itself is not coherent about what women should do or shouldn't do. There are multiple state institutions with different projects. So for example the education or the religious uh, uh, institutions say something, then the media says something else, uh, and then employ the labor ministry says something else. So there's no consensus. The, there are multiple actors in the state, each one with a vision, and therefore things lag behind and women uh, cannot drive in the 21st century. The third question, I didn't actually hear it about the history of uh, the, uh, the 10th century history of the Karamatan. Yeah, I, I don't think we could go into that. It's quite a, 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 you know, ancient history, and I'm not sure what aspect I should actually talk about. Um, yeah. Um, yes, the question about the economy. Uh, I, 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 in the book, I try to focus on how women are not one. Even the restrictions tend to be um, uh, imposed on every woman there are certain classes that get away with things that other women can't get away. So some also would argue that the campaign to drive has become a middle class uh, campaign for women who are employed. Um, in, in one interview I had, a woman said to me, the question is not whether I can drive or not, the question is whether I could afford a car. And therefore, for her, she can't afford a car whether they can drive or not. She still has to go on uh, public transport or with these uh, minivans for, uh, to, to go to work. Uh, so yes, there is a class element and uh, uh, you, you can never think of Saudi women as a homogeneous mass. They experience the oppression differently and some women get away with certain uh, things that other women can't. Um, and therefore, a, a class is extremely important. Uh, tribe, the tribal element. Now, the tribal element, I think this was a, a very uh, strong debate in the 70s and 80s about whether tribes oppress women or uh, are more oppressive than other social organizations. I think it's, it's, uh, it's not a straightforward answer. Um, uh, definitely the tribes in Saudi Arabia insist on endogamy, but more recently in urban contexts they are marrying out. Uh, the tribe may disinherit women, but then Islam may give her inheritance if she goes to a court. And therefore, the tribe and uh, Islam, we, ha we can't take things for granted and say, well, if you're a tribal society, you're definitely oppressing your women. There are different contexts in which women can gain certain rights. Um, so for example, endogamy itself, 
um, there are arguments that if you're marrying your cousin, you can't beat her up, and therefore domestic violence increases when women marry out in big cities, when they go and travel uh, and are based in, uh, away from home, away from the control of the extended family, and the husband could actually do all sorts of things, and nobody would know. Whereas if you're marrying your cousin, first cousin uh, or a relative, and you're living in a small uh, uh, society, uh, it is very, social control is extremely uh, uh, more obvious than in a very big city. So yes, I mean, uh, it is difficult to say, and it's not one, one answer, really. Okay, thank you. We'll now take another round of questions. There's um, a question in row three here. Yeah, and then. Um, hello, my name is Zahra, I come from Saudi Arabia, and um, I just have a question, like, um, as a Saudi woman, I interact with my... Could you hold the mic towards you? Yeah, as a Saudi woman, I interact with my people in my own society, and I come from different classes and from different backgrounds, and I'm just, like, even when we interact or try to understand what is really happening, like, it seems that we crash and we are unaware of the various <coughs> reasons so the overall picture seems that um, there is no possibility for us even to agree on something and even to raise our voices to have our rights. So do you think from your point of view or from academic point of view, is there any realistic approach that for the women can, ha can have their rights or civil rights like in our society? Yeah. Thank you. There's a question in the second row, just, just here. Good evening, Professor Madawi. Thank you so much for the lovely uh, lecture. Very interesting and informative. Um, I'm Mona, and I'd like to ask you a question, please. With regard to um, the women, can you hear me all right? Uh, with regard to the women that chosen not to learn, uh, not to drive or to go to work for their convenience, I mean, what is the ratio uh, for those who actually want to drive and want to go to work? And um, if uh, uh, if um, um, and also with regard to the um, uh, the Arab uh, Spring that we've been witnessing in the last few years, um, where people are demanding a change and equality and change of um, you know the, the content of the constitution and so on, um, is there any indication that uh, the Arab Spring is affecting the the uh, mentality, if you like, of, of Saudi women? Are they now, you know, demanding more? Uh, is there any movement? Can you see it? Thank you. Thank you. Um, we've got quite a few questions. I'm just going to uh, get the mic to the questions because I think it's important to get them heard. So there's one question here in the purple, and then there's right in the front. And I'll come to the ones at the back. Yep. Hello, my name is Tricia, and I'm a student at the LSE. I would like to thank you for this presentation. Well, my question is, um, do you think that having women in politics might be a solution to um, the breaking down of this gender gap? And also, um, do you think that those women who are actually against the legalization of women driving could be a real problem and that the government, uh, the state might use that as an excuse not to legalize it? <coughs> Thank you. And there's a question right in the front row. Gentlemen, blue. Hello, hi. Um, Rafatani, thank you very much for your informative talk. Um, throughout your analysis, your historical analysis, 
um, I got a gist that there was a sense of um, calculation. Do you really think the regime is clever enough to be as, as well, I think it's, um, it's clever enough to kind of calculate these scenarios where um, to empower than to unempower? Is it just not a causal link of time and different pressures internal and external? Okay, I'll take two more questions and then we'll go on to the final question round. So there's a question right there in the middle. There, the lady with her hand up. Yep. Um, Thank you for your talk, uh, Joanna Cook, uh, King's College London. Uh, I thought it was interesting that you opened uh, with the issue of uh, post 9-11 security and particularly uh, the, the terrorism and addressing the issues of security in Saudi Arabia. Um, but particularly in this context, do you think women could maybe use their traditional roles or create unique roles for themselves uh, to perhaps create a stake for themselves in addressing some of the more serious issues like this in society? Or would you say some of the most effective means would be, as you said, engagement with writing and activism? Thank you. Um, Sarah, there's a, qu there's a question right there, yeah. No, 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 right on top with that. Hello, um, my name is Natasha Jenner. I'm a clinical specialist. I was wondering whether the Saudi men having desert mentality, uh, somehow wanting to be in charge, and the state goes along with that because mostly are men. Therefore, they infantilize their willing victims that they are women to be dependent and not having freedom. And there is always fear of that uh, dependency, also interdependency as well, that women are dependent on men and men they are afraid to be abandoned by women. Therefore, restriction. Okay, just one last question, and this is because the question has been waiting for a very long time. <sighs> and then, then there will be a final round. And yes. Okay, so you can just answer them very quickly. Um, thank you. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Eva. I'm a student here at the LSE, a master's student. Um, given what you described as the co-opting of the women's movements in both directions, um, and, and the co-opting, um, do you, would you claim that women in Saudi Arabia do have agency? If so, how would you describe that agency and what do you see for changes in, in the position of women over the next five to ten years? Thank you very much. Would you like to respond? Yeah. Okay. There's a long list. Um, uh, Zahra first uh, about uh, how could they do it. <laughs> Is that your question? Yeah. Basically, I think um, the main, I mean, uh, we can only uh, look at other uh, uh, struggles in other parts of the world where women did achieve uh, you know, some serious political and uh, civil rights. I think the, the critical thing is uh, increasing women's participation in the economy. And then you become a pressure group, uh, without which it is very difficult. But the interesting thing is the Saudi government resists uh, increasing the uh, employment of both men and women. And there is a deliberate <coughs> policy here to keep the foreign workers because it is safer to have an, uh, a non-indigenous labor force that you could actually kick out of the country if they, hmm. are, uh, they cause trouble. And therefore, uh, keeping the employment uh, of men and women down is a political strategy, regardless of all the schemes to increase the employment uh, record. Uh, 
And therefore, once women become, uh, so for example, teachers, <coughs> teaching is the uh, profession that absorbs quite a lot of women. Uh, and they have no right to organize a trade, uh, a teacher's professional association. That when they are not treated well, they could stop the schools from functioning. Uh, and therefore, without organizing in old-fashioned civil society, it's very difficult. Uh, you know, some people say campaigns on Twitter, campaigns on Facebook. Yes, but uh, you really need to go beyond that. Uh, uh, these are means to spread the world, but they do not organize society. So that's a very quick answer. In terms of the ratio of, uh, uh, I think we, we don't really don't have statistics, but I think if you have an independent uh, uh, survey to see who would support women driving and who wouldn't, I would say that quite a substantial section of society would say no. But it is not something, you know, it, it's freedom of movement is a right, and you can't ask people <laughs> whether they want it or not. Uh, it is something that you don't have uh, uh, an opinion poll on. If it's a human right to move, then you, you can't, uh, if 70% of society doesn't want it, uh, you say we suspend it. I think that's a simple answer. In terms of the Arab Spring, yes, it did have an impact, but women's mobilization was going on before. Uh, I remember in 2005 uh, when uh, the uh, municipal elections were introduced in Saudi Arabia, some women were campaigning. Uh, they want to be included as voters, uh, at least as voters, if not candidates, and that was before the Arab Spring. So the Arab Spring actually just gave an example, a lively example of peaceful mobilization and the power of the masses, the power of the people. And this is extremely important, but so far Saudi women have, have, have joined in. And it depends where we're talking. Uh, which region of Saudi Arabia, we find two types of activism. So, for example, supporting uh, prisoners of conscience in both the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, where a Shia community lives, and in the central part, women have been demonstrating, Saudi women have been demonstrating in support of the right of political prisoners for, uh, to uh, fair trials. Um, but again, we do not see that kind of activism. If there is a campaign on Twitter to say on the 26th of October we're going to drive, then uh, international media would be following that story. But if like you know, 20 or 50 Saudi women uh, demonstrate in front of the security uh, services uh, asking for the release of their relatives from prison, that doesn't make big news, unfortunately. Um, uh, women in politics. Yes, women in politics, they should be part of the decision-making uh, process. And unfortunately, in uh, uh, the appointments that had taken place uh, in recent times in Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, 30 women were appointed to the Consultative Council, which, which is a consultative council, an unelected consultative council. Um, the interesting thing is that there is even segmentation at that level, that women should only speak about women's issues. They, they should not be talking about foreign policy. They should not be talking about politics. 
But you, you uh, cannot have that situation. In fact, Saudi men are not allowed to talk about foreign policy or, for example, military contract or corruption. And therefore, it's, very, uh, it's like a decor of power to have women in the Consultative Council. And the Consultative Council itself doesn't have any powers. It can give its opinion, but if the government, the king, doesn't take any notice, that's it. Um, women against driving is a problem. Uh, as I said, it's a, a, to drive is a human right, is to move, to be able to move. And if other women don't want to drive, they don't want to drive. You know, there are quite a lot of uh, allowed uh, things in our society. Not all women take them up. But it's, it's, uh, there is a difference between a gift and a right. Uh, so you could, you could not take it. You could not drive if you don't want to. Um, in terms of your question about uh, do I think uh, who is clever, uh, the government you mean? Uh, well, yeah, it's not like they sit down and think, oh, now we let's empower women. Or, you know, in, a, in, a, in 10 years, we're going to uh, take that right away from them. No, but it, this is a, a historical analysis that shows how the policies change. And therefore, uh, it makes me doubt whether the government is actually serious, simply because it is following a political agenda. But it's not like they sit and uh, conspire against women. It just happens like that. Uh, it's a response to urgent political agendas. So in the last 10 years, the political agenda was that Saudi Arabia should open up to foreign CNN journalists, uh, Fox News, to go and interview Saudi women. And why is it only after 9-11 that uh, a CNN journalists would go into a Saudi women's house to interview her? Why? So basically, when you have your data saying that this has happened after 9-11, so what was the context of 9-11 that pushed the Saudi government towards opening up or giving the impression that it is opening up, empowering women? It's not like a, a plan or a conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, there was a question about 9-11 and how women create, uh, it creates a, a, a platform for engagement. Sorry? This is a security issue that uh, I, I remember quite well after 9-11 that a lot of the global feminist industry wanted to enlist women uh, to fight terrorism uh, because they thought that they could actually have contact with the young generation, they bring them up and they could uh, deal with that situation. I have very um, uh, doubts about this kind of agenda, whether it will actually help women themselves to gain rights. Uh, you know, turning a woman into um, uh, uh, yet another, uh, it, it splits the, the women. I mean, you know, for that uh, problem to be resolved, uh, you are entering into the uh, confines of the family and playing with, with uh, roles that may not lend themselves easily to fighting terrorism. So it's very difficult. Um, I'm not sure about a Saudi desert mentality. I'm not sure what that means. Um, um, 
there isn't really such a, a desert mentality. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. It's, it's actually, it seems like it goes against what I said about culture. And here we're talking about geography. Um, so, sorry? Yes, I'm not sure what is Saudi desert mentality. Mm. Oh, well, I mean, there are quite a lot of uh, men who uh, fight fierce battles in, in, in forests. And anyway, I don't think I want to go into the desert mentality because um, it really doesn't explain to me, at least, um, anything interesting about Saudi men or women. Do women have agency? Yes, they do. I mean, they do have agency, but this agency is enabled and constrained by a structure, like all agency. Uh, and um, uh, they try to work, uh, they try to gain rights, I think, and work with the structure. Um, and how much the structure allows them is a political question. And therefore, uh, they, they uh, uh, struggle like every woman. Some of them are more privileged than others. Uh, some are uh, at the mercy of state welfare services. And some have no access to state welfare services. So the agency also is actually subdivided into categories. There isn't woman agency in an abstract way. Okay. Are you very tired? Can we take one or two or shall we uh, close? What time is it? We've just oh, got eight. about three minutes. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'll take one or two. Okay, we're going to, I'm afraid we will only be able to take two questions. Um, and I'll come right at the back because I haven't been able to do so thus far. Just two <laughs> questions, are, and then I'll have to draw the proceedings to a close. Um, just two questions, yes, right at the, the yes, the two corner uh, questioners. Yep. Um, my name is Jamel. Um, first of all, I want to know about, um, everyone knows about the, the traditional rules of the tribe in Saudi Arabia. Um, first of all, if you say, I belong from another tribe, it's against the, the rules of the tribe. For example, uh, the professor Al-Rashid, for example, if you are belong for the tribes of Al-Rashid, you can say, I belong for another tribes. Is it true or not in Saudi Arabia culture? Uh, what would you mean about Saudi woman? If you say Saudi woman means from the royal family of the Al Saud, I think this woman is treated better than another citizenship in Saudi Arabia. And another question. No, no, sir, sorry, um, you're allowed only one because I'm only taking two questions, okay. so I'm, I'm really sorry about that. We're running out of time. The next uh, questioner. Hello, my name is Wasila House. Really interesting um, lecture, thank you so much. I'm actually also very much interested in the gender issue. Here, in that respect, I'm wondering in your research, have you come across the comparison between the older generation of women and men, Saudis, uh, baby boomers, uh, that is, and then the generation Y, the younger generation, uh, those young um, men and women, Saudis, who are very much exposed to higher education, universities, social media, blogging, and uh, obviously um, world uh, travel uh, around the globe. Would that possibly affect the way in the future Saudi might be modernized and uh, become more secular, exactly like Turkey? 
Thank you very much. I'm not sure about the tribal uh, uh, question at the beginning. I, I didn't hear it actually, and I'm not sure what you meant. Um, on the uh, um, to say that Saudi is going to turn into a secular Turkey. I mean, I, Turkey itself is. We have this image about Turkey. I've travelled uh, Turkey several times, of Turkey as the epitome of the Muslim secular society. But I didn't really find that. It, it is quite a myth that is perpetuated. There are sections of Turkish society that are like that, but there are other Turks who are actually very conservative, even more conservative than the Saudis in some respects. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. I cannot allow it. I'm really sorry. Yeah. We've run out of time. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, it's oppression is... Uh, yeah, but then again, as I said, you, know, that you have to look at oppression and uh, 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 see how it unfolds among different sections, different categories of women. Um, yeah. Um, okay, I'm afraid we really, I'm, so, I'm really sorry, but, uh, well, I'm afraid that is the prerogative of the speaker. I'm afraid that is the prerogative say, uh, of the speaker. one word about it. Yes, I mean, the Saudis have been traveling, but again, you get uh, uh, now probably a, a wider group uh, going abroad, traveling, uh, studying abroad. But doesn't always follow that when they come back, uh, they're going to spread these ideas. Um, in fact, sometimes it is possible to have this experience as a counterproductive. Uh, an early generation traveled abroad and saw things that they do not want to duplicate in their own society. So traveling, yes, opens your horizon, makes you see uh, new experiences, but doesn't necessarily mean that you want it when you go home. What about that blue? The yeah, the, the blue about uh, tribalism. Could you just say something more about it again? Yeah. Um, because the society of Saudi Arabia is based on tribes. So if you belong to uh, so the tribe of Ansar, you treat it better. You are treated better. Yeah, yeah. you treat it better than if you belong to, for example, Al Rashid. So what's the question? The question is, I believe, um, not on Saudi women, they treat it the same. Okay. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. I agree with you that, you know, this is what I tried to uh, put forward, that you, there isn't just the women. There are certain rules and regulations that apply to all women, but some women are able to get away with uh, and have certain freedoms that other women don't have. I agree with that. Okay, I'm afraid now we really have run out of time. <laughs> okay, so, um, and I must draw proceedings to a close, and therefore, but before I do, uh, let me draw uh, your attention to the CUP uh, table here. Uh, Professor uh, Arashid's book is here, and she has sort of kindly uh, sort of consented to uh, sign a few of them, should you be interested in buying the book. Okay, so, um, thank you very much for all your uh, questions. And thank you very much, uh, Professor Al-Rashid, for answering and responding to those questions with such clarity, concision, and patience. Um, and, and all that's left for me to do is to thank the speaker. So again, a round of applause, please, for the speaker.